When we think of refugees, today's guests are not what typically comes to mind. They're working to change that, however, and are trying to widen society's views on what asylum seekers can be. Here are Renee and Tina Dixon. My name is Tina Dixon. I'm a PhD candidate here at ANU. I'm also, together with Renee, a co-founder of the refugee-led peer support group for queer refugee women called Queer Sisterhood Project. And this year we are co-conveners of the first Australian conference on LGBTQ asylum called Queer Displacement, Sexuality, Migration and Exile. My name is Renee Dixon and I'm a PhD candidate at the Australian National University and I'm a partner of Tina Dixon and we live together 11 years. 11 years, congratulations. Thank you. <laughs> so each of your PhD projects covers a similar theme and they're each steeped in some pretty personal experiences. I'd like to talk about your research, but before we get onto that, maybe let's hop to the personal aspect of things. How was it that the two of you met? Oh, it was long time ago. And um, first time we met when uh, I opened, uh, this was opening day of my NGO, which I established. And it was over 100 guests who came uh, that day. And we briefly meet, met with Tina and probably that time that was that's it. Uh, but later we start working together closely and um, something happened. <laughs> <laughs> and what did you think of each other when you initially met? Probably nothing much at the beginning, only like when um, so much later, it was like a few months later that we started to spend lots of time for work together, like via emails and phones, but also in person. Um, I don't know, there was just something in Renee that attracted me. And I think when you fall in love, you don't really think. And I kind of felt that she just was my person. And so I was taking all the steps to ensure that um, we stayed together and that those relationship um, were developing in something bigger. Yeah, definitely. When I met Tina and we had these relationships, I felt like I found home. I love that. My person <laughs> and you found home. That's, yeah. I just love that. <laughs> okay, so uh, so you found each other and things were great for a while, but then your lives were severely disrupted and you had to flee the country that you were living in, your country of origin. Now, I had originally wanted to ask you how you knew it was time to leave your country and I understand that you have some some discomfort with that question. And there are other questions which other interviewers sometimes ask you, which you're also uncomfortable with. We'll get onto those later on. But with that question of how you knew it was time to flee your country, would you mind just addressing your discomfort with that? And why it is that it's a question that maybe you feel is an inappropriate one to ask of people in your situation? Sure. I think... Um in the context of sort of asylum and refugees, what happens in Australia is that a lot of people feel um, entitled to ask you what happened to you and how you came to Australia and they want to know the details of violence or persecution. And for me, only two people can ask the question. One was the immigration lawyer that helps you put the case forward. And the second person is the immigration case officer who decides whether you fit into the criteria of refugee by international human rights law or not. And I think we've 
been past that stage. We were granted protection visas back in 2013. So if other people want to ask and to know that, I think it is a fact that, you know, we've experienced violence and, you know, as human rights activists and as, I guess, open LGBTIQ people, but often those questions come across as almost the justification of why you're here or whether you're deserving to be here. And then they go hand in hand with sort of narratives of who is a real refugee, right? And and almost the amount of violence you um, had experienced to qualify to be that one and sort of what you do now and all of those things. Um, and that contributes to that othering, that you don't feel like you belong. You feel that a part of your life experiences becomes your identity, like it's imposed on you and this is the only thing that you are. And I just reject that. And I think there is kind of more to us than that and there are other ways for people to learn about the plight of refugees without necessarily asking people to tell parts of their lives that may well be still really traumatic for them and people still are not ready to talk and some people do tell their stories and some people sort of selectively tell their stories and some people will never be able to tell just because you want to move beyond that part of your life and I think we should be respecting those choices. Yeah, it strikes me that people feel very entitled to ask what's happening to you, but uh, you're not their relative, you're not their friend. They think that they can ask this, but let's think, do you want to share about your hardship or about your traumatic experience? Because if you're a person who will grow up in Australia, you probably will have some story which will will be very traumatized in your um, not traumatized, painful, painful, traumatic in your life. So do you want to share this story with me? Like, (laughs) just think before you ask. Yeah, I guess um, there are these questions that other people think are very benign and they maybe don't realize the extent to which they are like deeply personal. And other questions that people might think are pretty benign questions would be asking you what your country of origin is and um, the details of what it was that happened to you that made it so you had to leave. Would you be able to address why it is that you also choose not to say where you came from? Um So there is two reasons for that. One reason is that the where are you from question or sometimes where you're from originally does not just stop there. And in the context of asylum and in particular queer asylum, it means that people will ask you what happened to you. And so you will have to, for example, disclose that you come as a refugee. And if you come from a country that is not typically seen as sort of producing refugees, so people will um, sort of like, ask again what would happen to you and you will have to come out as queer and so sort of like jumping a little bit ahead but in my research I work with queer women who sought asylum in Australia and some of them have been closeted for most of their lives and we're talking like 30, 40, 50 years and so for them it's really difficult just because they're in Australia to come out but the way from question kind of forces you to do this double coming out as a refugee and as a queer person. And then you never know what sort of response you're going to get if somebody is racist or somebody's homophobic. So there are, you know, those um, reasons that you 
you will be cautious. Also for me, the question is othering you sort of then, you know, it's really often that it's white people who ask you that and you almost feel that you really have to justify that you are legitimate on this land. And for me, this is ironic given the colonial history of Australia as well. But the second reason, um, and I guess it's even like more personal, is that because we did not leave the country in a way out of blue, like when the war breaks down and you really love your country and you sort of have to to leave, being a open queer woman, you experience that systematic and ongoing oppression and silencing and sort of almost attrition throughout the whole life. So I do not feel, to some extent, the connection to the country uh, where I was born. I do not... Um, miss it I may be missing sort of the nature or the friends but not the country per se I'm not that I guess um, example of that particular ethnicity and if you do say from the country lots of people then start you know sort of associating you straight away with whatever stereotypes they have about their particular ethnicity or nation so for me that is problematic because I sort of have very complex relationships to the country of origin. Sometimes people asking you, you this well-meaning question, but, you know, for me, it will be well-meaning question if you ask me what book I'm reading now, what is my favorite movie. It will describe me more for you than just the country of origin. So you left your country and then you came to Australia in 2012 on protection visas. And when you arrived here, you brought with you a wealth of experiences, including all of your time working in the human rights area. But when you came, you decided that you didn't want to engage in that work anymore and you didn't want to talk about what you'd been through. But then that changed. You did start to re-engage in that work Um, And I guess you've spoken a little bit about your experiences. Can you talk about what it was that led you to change your minds on that? I think the the correction before answering the question is that we came to Australia on tourist visas and sort of applied for protection onshore. And the only reason I guess I'm saying this is that because we came before the major migration change that happened in 2013 by the current government and what it meant that for us it took about four to five months to actually go through the whole process of seeking asylum and we got the visas people who came from 2013 onwards it now takes them between two and three years just for the initial first assessment interview and then sometimes if they're rejected that it takes another couple of years for the tribunal so I guess we also recognized how privileged we were just to accidentally come in the time when the migration law was actually more like a human rights law as opposed to now this whole discourses of um, sort of securitization and um, and othering and all of the, um, I guess, border fears. Um, but back to the question, I guess the first couple of years we did want it initially to engage there was some sort of a resistance from refugee places in terms of sexuality and like addressing the issues of queer refugees and um, there was no much willingness to go down that path. Within the LGBTQ spaces, I guess what was preventing us from fully engaging was the survival guilt. But when you go there and because you're a person from a third world country, there is 
kind of that patronizing attitude so it's you as opposed to really equal attitude um, none of our experiences in terms of work or education or advocacy really mattered here it was extremely difficult with the job search and when you go there and sort of people don't treat you as equal that contributes back to your feelings of sort of survival guilt and shame and I think in that time that just really prevented us from from re-entering those um, spaces and then I guess later on, probably on a third year, when there was a little bit more knowledge about Australia, there was a little bit more comfort with the language, I guess understanding of systems, but also to some degree just the personal readiness to sort of re-engage with that space. But I personally cannot remember the day or the time or the month when I've decided that I wanted to do the PhD and I think this is sort of a trauma response because I don't remember much from the first two years in Australia. I cannot like recall a day, what we, like how the day would look like. Yeah, it's we, we've been talking about this for some time now that when people ask me how did you decide the PhD, I cannot actually answer that question um, seriously. But I think there was some sort of an acknowledgement that you know, we were ready to do some work and then it sort of started with, you know, my grad diploma and then I went to work at the Refugee Legal Centre and it kind of just unfolded from there. For me, it was a bit different story because when I came to Australia, I didn't speak any English at all. And often Tina interpret <laughs> me to other people. But I, from my side, I think like it's developed gradually because... All of these narratives about refugee issues, queue jumpers, boat people, you know, uh, it's all um, affected us and uh, affected me. And from the other side, all of this exhibition about poor refugees and how refugee sector treated us and how they're talking about us, it sometimes make me angry because they only portrayed refugee people as vulnerable and not capable to sometimes cope with their trauma and like there is more stories to that like you can't engage only with perpetuating all of these vulnerabilities what we have we're still strong we still survive and when you present yourself as a strong and capable some people don't like it and uh, I think that was, for me, the starting point that I decided to create uh, my art project as a way of expressing myself and my view on how I'm seeing this situation. So following on from that, what was the art project that you did which told these stories of people surviving and, um, yes? So the idea was not to perpetuate the vulnerability and stories of seeking asylum. I decided to create the project where I uh, found people from the different historical periods of time uh, who came like from Holocaust survival until recent arrivals. And I asked them the question, so there's time passed, how do they feel now? Do they feel like they, be they belong? What are they proud of? Like, are they happy? How they settled down? I really want to show the other side, which is often are not represented in the media. And it was quite a successful project uh, because we have chance to show this project um, in um, Melbourne, regional New South Wales, Sydney. Yeah. <laughs> 
So following on from that, and you've sort of touched upon this a little bit, it seems like there are some stereotypes that people who haven't been displaced before hold about refugees and asylum seekers. And I think the two of you haven't tended to fit very neatly within those stereotypes and the notions that people have about what an asylum seeker looks like or or who they are. And I think a lot of your work has tried to challenge those notions but also those notions have kind of harmed you in a way. Would you be able to speak to that? Probably the only agency that really pushes stereotypes are actually the government, right? Because, you know, and I don't want to repeat those things because they sometimes sort of like pump that media discourse about sort of who refugees are when it's just not true. What for me is kind of more prominent is the single narratives, because I think a lot of publics still are very accepting and open to it. Like a couple of years ago, Let Them Stay campaign showed that, you know, there was a shift in public narratives and in public opinion from before this issue being 50-50, sort of like not sure, to 70-30, sort of 70% of people actually thinking that Australia could do better and, you know, could support people seeking asylum and, you know, like offer that um, safety. But in having said that, there's still those single narratives that see refugees as of particular genders, as coming from only particular regions, which can be statistically true, that, you know, we have like, you know, the huge conflict in Syria, we have a very protracted Rohingya situation, um, but also those narratives sometimes further exclude those other people that still fall under the definition of refugees, um, you know, like people who've like LGBTQ people or people who flee some sort of a political prosecution. We don't talk enough about women who come from very patriarchal regimes like Saudi Arabia, for example, who would fall under the definition of social category, for example. And that, for me, sometimes becomes this almost signal that you are you are further silenced and excluded, that there is no space to voice that out because sometimes, um, you know, you would sort of say and then people start, like, comparing your experiences, which is totally illegitimate because everybody experiences prosecution differently and everybody um, has a right to seek asylum. And I think that is really damaging, same as, as seeing refugees, that, you know, refugees are only heterosexual people without regarding a people who are LGBTQ and seek asylum because of that. But also you have people who, you know, who flee war, for example, and they are LGBTQ. You have, you know, people who come with young children, they become teenagers and later in life here in Australia, they come out. So, you know, we can't say that the LGBTQ refugees are such a small population because statistically they'll be the same as the number of LGBTQ people anywhere. So I think it's important that we um, learn and enlarge a little bit on those narratives. And it's important that also people kind of do their homework a little bit and, and read more and read kind of broadly. What's been the impact on you of this sort of single narrative that people have about refugees? I think before it took a lot of work to actually work against this and um I was on some other panel yesterday and I was kind of reflecting of what the refugee experience meant to me and one of the things that I said was that the refugee experience for me means resistance where I'm resisting right to these single narratives and sort of trying to enlarge people's understanding but also where I'm resisted too because I do that because for some people I sort of create this discomfort and I think now sort of several years later I learned to deal with it and to live with it but initially it was really 
like it just affected me deeply on a personal level. I remember one panel a couple of years ago, which was about refugee women. And um, I don't remember what they were talking about, but essentially everything they were talking about was very... It was about womanhood, how women support each other. and but in, um, a, but in a very heterosexual way. So it was all about the husbands, right? It was all about wanting to have children. It was all about like this idea of sisterhood. But that idea of sisterhood never envisioned anybody who was not heterosexual. Anybody who, let's say, did not want to have children but was heterosexual, right? Like there was no kind of... Um, flexibility there was a very confined box of what a woman meant in that particular situation and for the first time it actually got to me so much like I was driving home I was really upset because I felt that you come to Australia with this idea that you're going to be safe and included but then those little things that perhaps not necessarily target you directly but they actually affect you because they keep telling you that you don't belong here you're not part of this womanhood category you're not part of the general society when you sort of go out and you hear this where are you from questions and you know that is really I guess difficult on, on yourself but over the time I, I I think because there was so much work done and in the last couple of years there was lots of advocacy that we did there was lots of conference presentations you know the media interviews and I think that that um, also showed um, I guess the validity of the story but also put us on some kind of an expert level as well that those things are happening less um, now or when they're happening you sort of know how to deal with it but it's still you feel unless you actually call people out and unless you say even I think with refugee spaces it's even difficult to raise gender and to talk about women like we tend to talk about refugees as this sort of homogenous group which in reality we sort of tend to talk from a male perspective, not understanding how the displacement affects women differently. So I think you still have to keep sort of reminding people that it's not just such a simple topic. We can't just talk from a male perspective. You know, we have to enlarge that and that like an ongoing work. But the situation is continuing, uh, continuing with these patriarchal structures in LGBTIQ spaces. Because, for example, when we're talking about LGBTIQ refugees, often we're talking about male accounted. And um, we need to diversify this because uh, in my work, where I creating LGBTIQ archive of oral histories of people who was uh, forcibly migrated to other countries, I found out that in LGBTIQ archives, often you will find more uh, stories of um, white male gay men and we need to think how we collecting our stories how we uh, having all of this conversation how we centering them in which way so it's like a lot of work to be done everywhere <laughs> Getting back to the art project that you had previously done, Renee, and how that showed the stories of women who were strong and um, had hope and were resilient, that reminded me a bit of some comments that you've made publicly, Tina, on how you felt like you're a bad refugee. <laughs> Would you be able to talk about why it is that you feel like you're a so-called bad refugee? 
Um, I think it's connected to this whole idea of single narratives where we expect refugees to tell their stories and we expect that story to adhere to a very particular script. So in the context of gender refugees, you know, you sort of should recall your traumas, what happened to you, and then you should be really grateful and to the country of origin. You should, um, we kind of follow this almost capitalist narratives that you, you know, you have to integrate well and achieve and become this, you know, the high achiever in whatever profession you are in. And also like there should be a limited list of professions where you are in, like doctors, engineers and things like that. And then in terms of queer refugees, kind of those single narratives go on to always talk about your country of origin as really backwards and sort of homophobic and all of it, which is kind of true, that's why you left. But there's no way in those narratives sometimes to miss or to like the country because that country must have been always bad. And then Australia, by default, should be this like perfect almost gay paradise where safety is, is the guarantee. And again, you have to be really grateful and integrate well. And I think because I said that, because I sometimes do not behave like I'm a grateful refugee because I'm critical of, on the one hand, sort of of the migration policies, but also on the support. Um, there is a big movement now in terms of um, refugee-led advocacy and support. And I think this is a big point of tension everywhere, both on domestic and international level, that lots of people who think of themselves as supporters or allies and who don't have the lived experience, they feel like the power shifting, right? And they, they kind of feel a little bit defensive sometimes and a little bit sort of nervous perhaps that they're losing some sort of a power position which for me is is kind of puzzling because when you think of let's say lgbtq places or women's places it was always the community that was driving the change right and so in the refugee places you sort of have other people doing all of the work on your behalf and like you have to be grateful and sit quietly and this is just not who i am i think um and I remember one of the first panels that I did, which I think kind of led me to this thinking, was when I was invited to the panel where I was meant to share my story. And I agreed. And then I did a rebellious act because I didn't know. And I went on to talk about how unethical it was to ask people about this and what it meant. And one of the phrases that I said was that I did not need anybody to feel sorry for me or to feel pity. And I saw this person in the room who just crossed their hands and kind of like leaned back on their chair. They actually had a physical reaction because how dare I am to be like, I don't need you to be sorry for me. I'm actually a capable person. I've got agency and I can do things for myself. And I think that kind of led me thinking how I'm disrupt those narratives, right? And how perhaps sometimes they challenge people. I also talk a lot about um, white privilege and decolonization. And um, in most of my talks, I do a content warning, not because I'm going to be unpacking any violent or traumatic experiences, but that I'm actually going to be challenging people on in terms of their race. And some people really don't like it. And some people do when they come and later and say to you, you know, thanks for bringing those topics up. But I think because I do not adhere to the narratives that are expected from me. Um, I kind of use it, you know, in the quote marks as a, as a bad refugee um, that I challenge. But I also think it's kind of problematic because we only want to hear the refugee stories of success and, and integration and great achievements without almost giving people space to heal. And for some, 
there may be a much longer process than three, five or ten years, right? So what about people who cannot get out of the bed because of what happened to them? I, I think we kind of like we push people to do something. We don't give that space for people to sort of move on with their lives on their own pace. And I think, yeah, I'm always I'm always resistant to, to those things. It's interesting as you say that it occurs to me that on the one hand, we want to recognize the strength and the resilience and the agency of asylum seekers and the displaced. But then on the other hand, we also need to improve the level and the sorts of support and services that we provide to them in recognition of their diverse needs and experiences. You know, I have one friend, she's asylum seekers, and um, she's saying like, every time when I'm coming to uh, some NGO who provided support services for refugees, I need to tell my story to a social worker in a way that he will he or they, they will feel sorry for them. And she asked me, what type of life is this? If every time I need to present myself as very deeply traumatized and vulnerable and in need and, and get support only after this, not just because I'm eligible, full stop. I think you you can still have agency and yet be in need of I don't know trauma counseling, right? I think what happens in Australia is um, there is sort of like it's either black or white, right? You're either so vulnerable, completely decapacitated, or then you have agency and you kind of moved on with your life. You had it all figured out. I think it's much more blurrier than that. You know, you can still get up and go about your life and have agency and yet have those needs and and you want like Renee said the service providers to recognize that and you know to address their specificity because sometimes for LGBTQ refugees those things are different for example there's much more safety considerations involved or kind of a much more nuanced understanding of trauma that is not that episodic for example from that violence but sort of like this compilation of lifelong events those two things can go hand in hand. And at the same time, um, do not ask for help in a way that they expect it. For example, you don't want to tell your story. You don't want to share this story. It's as well trauma response. I remember we've been in one training for service providers uh, on the refugee and LGBTQ spaces. And one of the moderator, he asked the question, so for whom you will tend to help more? And a lot of people said, to the person who whose stories I know. And I think it's quite a twisted approach in the service provider's uh, work. Like, I think that, you know, in those contexts, like, you know, the organizations that help people, you always should have a list of services transparent to you. And so you'd be like, okay, at this stage of my life, I feel like I'm ready for counseling or I need legal help or medical or things like that without asking people to retell and retell because I think sometimes when the service system is not integrated and you have to go to legal service and tell and then you have to go somewhere else and tell and then somewhere else and tell, like this becomes really damaging to the person, right? So there should be either better integration system that you tell at once and that is shared with appropriate safeguards within the services or you just recognize as a person who is able to choose from the list of services what they need right now. And because they don't have this open list of services, it's often happened that you need to come, you need to tell your story. And they said, oh, 
maybe go to a refugee service because they will be better to equip to help you. And you like bouncing between service provider who not providing a service for you and you not getting helped. So both of your PhD projects are in service of the goal of, I think, presenting a more diverse picture of asylum seekers. Renee, you already mentioned a little bit about your project before. Would you mind just going into a tiny bit more detail about it? So as Tina already addressed, like all the time when um, you go into the different spaces, uh, your your story will be shaped accordingly to these spaces. Because I can see these gaps and there is no true voice of LGBTIQ migrants and refugees, I want to preserve this voice and I want to have these stories be open and public that uh, no one can say there is the only one refugee LGBTIQ story. Uh, And I think uh, we need to diversify who can be a refugee. Um, In my project, I'm using queer theory because like not a lot of people realize that LGBTIQ, it's very Western acronym. But before colonization and after colonization, in many countries, we have our own terms to our sexuality to identify us. So I think in my project and in my archive, I really want to preserve this knowledge as well and don't have very whitewashed uh, LGBTIQ history. And Tina, would you be able to describe your project? Um, I'm looking at the lived experiences of queer refugee women and I'm looking at them on the continuum sort of from their lives back in their home countries to arrival to Australia and then a bit longer. Because in the context of LGBTQ asylum research, a lot like the biggest bulk of the research that is done is in the legal space which is really important. And then a lot of the research stops at the point of arrival to Australia and a visa grant, thinking that just that sort of like a border crossing um, for you when you are an LGBTQ person makes your life really safe. And I'm trying to challenge and to explore that a little bit more, looking whether there is more violence that is happening or discrimination, sort of what happens later in life in Australia when you're a queer woman. Um, So I had seven women in my research where we worked with them um, sort of ethnographically for about seven months um, and explored different aspects of their stories, questions of identity, belonging, who's your community here in Australia, um, things like that. I need to add in this case... uh, so in my archive, I'm as well trying to addressing very rigid norms of archival practices because you have only like one gender, male or female, and uh, there is no addressing any other identities. And I'm trying to shake these archival norms and practices uh, and make them more inclusive uh, towards to our stories. So both your projects seem to be about capturing people's stories and giving voice to people. But the conference that you have coming up, Queer Displacements, which you're running and is happening in November, that seems to sort of take things one step further. And it goes to something that you said before, Tina, about refugee-led advocacy. So with the conference 
you seem to be harnessing people's stories and their lived experiences and you're trying to use these to drive systemic change. Would you be able to talk more about the conference that you've got coming up? Uh, you said giving people voices. People have voices. Mm-hmm. Uh, we just need to listen to them. Uh, but not all spaces are ready to give it. Uh, and we want to bring this conference and establish this conference to center people with lived experiences, voices in the first place, because it should be a best practice uh, how things should be done. To follow up on that, so the conference, and now because we already almost have the program final, is going to address the issue of LGBTQ asylum from really multiple angles. So we're going to be talking about law, we're going to be talking about health, we're going to be talking about art and history, inclusive service provision, we were able to get grants and, and fundraise to be able to um, give scholarships to LGBTQ people seeking asylum or from refugee backgrounds. So we're bringing about 23, I think the last count was, who were sponsored to come to Canberra and participate. We're going to have a community dialogue where these people can voice those ch- um, challenges and issues that they're experiencing in Australia and where we can actually have this dialogue with a broader audience right of supporters how we can coordinate how we address those challenges because I think in a lot of spaces that work is done by NGOs with some consultation or not enough consultation and I think this is a unique opportunity for sort of two distinct groups right people with lived experience and people who support people with lived experience to come together and, and discuss this. So what is your ultimate goal through your work when do you think that you'll be in a position where you'll feel comfortable with how things are and that you'll feel like you can discontinue, stop your work. Okay, um, it's not a good thing to get comfortable, right? Because sometimes in that comfort, you can actually be complicit with something, right? Like I really, in like the service provision space, I find it so wrong when people say well you know I've been doing this work for 15 years in this particular way this is the right way to do it right so this is the same with comfort if I'm too comfortable I may be actually missing out and sometimes actually good to create those little pockets of discomfort that makes you challenge and question and and rethink um, because maybe what we do some of the things that we do are you know we will look back in five years and be like oh I should have done this better and in this way and in a different way and it wasn't the more appropriate way so I kind of still want to live the life when I'm developing continually Um, in terms of stopping this work I mean of course you want to come to and there's so many refugee NGOs when they were established back in the day they were done sort of like with a vision that in five years we're going to resettle all these people from this particular crisis right and the world will learn from the mistakes and that will never happen again we see constant attack now on women's rights, sexual reproductive health rights, and LGBTQ rights. Things are getting somewhere better, but on the international level, with the UN, for example, the only thing you do now is you fight to sustain the language that is already there. There's no space at all to fight for something better, for the improvement. So I also do not believe that things will sort of so dramatically change that there won't be any need for the support and the conversation about LGBTQ refugees. We also have a climate change and we also have a very limited time 
to actually start doing something and it's sort of like a different discussion but there is a real lack of recognition of people who will be fleeing from their countries because of the climate change so i just i don't want to be negative but i don't think that this work will stop i think we have to be at some place when you don't have to anymore justify the validity of your work right you don't have to say well somebody who's queer has to be treated equally like i would love for that day to come but in general i think there'll, there'll be much more that needs to be done unfortunately you will find in the society always the pockets of bigotry and the rights is not something which is given to you you need fight for them you need to take them and um, as experience of living in different countries it shows me there is no way to stop this activist work in terms of what motivates you and drives you to do the work that you do has it changed from when you first started uh yeah because when i started i started my activist work by myself uh but with tina i think with with tina we've very great team we have responsibility and um i don't like when people saying that they passionate about their work work because in our case um uh, it's strange to say that you're passionate about refugee issues uh i think we need to use the language that you are professional about something But also passion is an emotion, right? And this kind of comes to the point that you can be passionate now, but then if you cannot sustain yourself and you cannot sustain that passion, and let's say at some point you just decide to drop it. And sometimes it's a valid reason, you know, the burnout is a real thing and you know, and people need to really care for themselves, questions of vicarious trauma, all of that. But that sometimes can have a very negative impact on the community who you are working with. And also sometimes for me that emotion kind of associates with impulsiveness as opposed to actually like strategic and systemic change that may not occur just within a day or the month, but you kind of have to work longer for that. So I agree with Renee that um, it is a question of professionalism. It is a question of responsibility. It is a, also a question of being accountable back to the community who you work with that you know that your work actually brings um, the positive change to them. And in a lot of spaces, you have two types of activism. People who have a capacity and a time, and people probably like we are, whose survival depends on our work. If you want to be effective, you need to learn how to be professional and good at, at your work, I would say. Because if you If you stop, who will continue? So it's a long road ahead and there's still a lot of work to be done and I'm sure that the two of you will continue with that fight. If there is a positive note to be found in all of this, I think it's in the two of you, in in how you know you have each other and that you'll do this together and I'd like to hope that that will hopefully sustain you in your work. Um, well, thank you to the both of you for talking to me. Thank you. Thanks. This Academics Life is written and produced by me, Ivana Ho, for the College of Arts and Social Sciences at the Australian National University. The production assistant for this episode was Brandon Tan. The theme music is Snowblower by Flower Crown. I have another listening recommendation for you from our podcast, Better Things. 
In episode 6, here art historian Professor Chris McAuliffe and I discuss what our stuff says about us and the limits of trying to understand someone by looking at their possessions. Catch you next time.